thank you so much for being here today. And normally right now I'd be sending our kids out. But like I said, today we are going to have the kids in here with us during the service. And kids, I just need your help with one word. I'm going to ask you to repeat it throughout the day today, throughout the message today. And I need you to say it loud for me so I know that you're still with me, okay? If you want to draw caterpillars on the tithe envelopes, that's fine too. But this is the one word I need you to do for me. If I say the word everything, I need you to say back the word everything for me, okay? So everything. Can you guys say it? I'm sorry, I can't hear you. What? Okay, you guys over here, what is it? And what is it over back here? Everything, yes. Okay, so we're going to use that word a couple of times today, and I'm just going to make sure that everybody understands the word everything. So there's the time that it says everything through this passage, and we see it in everything, we're going to have to understand what everything actually means. See, what we have today is we have quite a bit to do. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 3, verse 20, all the way through chapter 4, verse 18, and there's really two different messages here. It starts off talking about Paul talking to children, saying, in everything, in everything, we need to obey. And you go, okay, well, what's everything? And then it talks about fathers and mothers really geared towards the fathers because of the head of the household thing we talked about last week. Gearing it, saying, in everything, don't also provoke your children. Don't make them irritable. Don't irritate them. Love them. Guide them. Don't discourage them. Then it goes on to talk about slaves and masters in the same kind of way. In everything, the slaves are supposed to obey their masters. And you go, wait a second, what does that even mean? So that's chapter 3. But then in the beginning of chapter 4, it jumps over and it starts talking about this idea of be diligent in praying, and praying for everything, and praying for ministry, and praying for these things. And you're going to hear that word everything a lot of times today. And then it goes into the end of chapter 4, where it lists out the team, the team of people that come alongside of Paul. And so what we're going to do today is I said to myself, how am I supposed to tie all of this together? How can we talk about children obeying, fathers treating their kids all right, masters and slaves praying, and this team? How can it all come together? What can we make that is all one? And you know what it is? It's the same thing we've been talking about since the beginning of Colossians. It's the same thing we've been talking about since the beginning of the church and the same thing we're going to talk about for the rest of the future of the church. And that is Jesus at center. Jesus at center is what makes these things possible. Because if I went out and I just walked up to your average person and said, this is what you're supposed to do. If you don't have a basis of Jesus at center, you're not going to grasp it. You're not going to understand it. You're not going to want to do it because we naturally rebel against these things. We naturally rebel. If our mindset isn't on Christ at center, we are going to be all messed up in this. If he is not preeminent, which is number one, instead of prominent, which is in the top five, it also changes things. See, when Jesus is at the center of our lives, he changes our lives. For the whole nine weeks we've looked at, we said in the first two chapters, Paul says, this is who Jesus is. And he lays out all the great things about who Jesus is. And the next two chapters says, this is what you should do about it. Not just what you should say about it, but what you should do about it. And make sure your says start to come together and match your dues. He says, kill all your old sinful nature. Put on this new nature that is Christ. Put it on and live it out. Why you do what you do. Why you say what you say. Why you pray. Why you worship. Why you love. Why you do these relationships that we're going to talk about. It all changes when Jesus is at the center. He changes. Guess what we're going to use right now? Everything. 
He changes everything. If he's at the center of our life, he changes our mind, he changes our thoughts, he changes our actions, he changes our reactions. He changes everything. But the problem is, in today's version of Christianity, that doesn't seem to be the case. In today's version of Christianity, and today we we have this idea that Christ is just an add-on to our sinful lives. He kind of is that go-behind cleaner up that I can do what I want because His grace and His mercy, which is awesome, by the way, but His grace and His mercy is going to cover it all. Just because I have grace, I can sin and do whatever I want. Paul tells the church at Galatia not to do that. But we have this tendency to live that way, that, that Jesus is somehow just a positive change to our old life, not a complete overhaul of our old life. Not bring us back from the dead, from that old life. But listen to these stats I pulled from the USA Today and Wall Street Journal. I tell you the reason why I pulled it from those is because it's not like it's some Christian journal that I pulled it from. This is actual statistics coming from a secular mainstream source. 65% of people who claim Christianity rarely or never pray with others. 65%. 38% almost never even pray by themselves. These are people who claim Christianity. Christianity, by the way, is a relationship with Jesus Christ. 38%, 38% say they almost never pray. They say they're in a relationship with Jesus, yet they never talk to him. If that is possible, then I have a relationship with Aaron Rodgers. I have a relationship with Paul Goldschmidt. I have a relationship with the President Trump. I got a relationship with all these guys because I think in my head that I have a relationship even though I don't ever talk to him. Next stat is this, 65% of all Christians surveyed rarely or never attend any type of worship gathering. 67% don't read the Bible. 50% don't believe that Jesus is the only path to God. I'm not sure what they're believing. 68% don't mention faith, religion, spirituality, or Jesus Christ when asked what's actually important in your life. You're starting to get a picture here of Christianity, of what people believe is Christianity. Here's two more. 50% don't attend church at least two times a month. And 40% of evangelicals polled say their responsibility uh, to share the gospel with their neighbors, co-workers, and friends. It's their responsibility, only 40%. Which means the other 60% say it's not up to me to share the gospel with my neighbors, my friends, and my co-workers. We are messed up in our thinking, if that's what you think. See, this group of people says, I love Jesus, but I don't pray. I don't read anything about him. I don't ever talk to him. And, by the way, I don't ever connect in a Christian community to help me stay there, but I am a Christian. Can I ask you if that's possible? Is it possible to be a Christian and not actually have a relationship with Jesus Christ? No, because Christianity is based on a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not based on following rules. It's not based on being a better person. It's not based on these things. It's based on a relationship with Jesus Christ. In a relationship comes connection, comes talking, comes praying, comes wanting to learn more about somebody. If I told you you're in a relationship with your spouse and you only talk to them on Sunday morning only twice a month, That relationship isn't going to be very good, if existent at all. It's the same thing with Jesus. See, that version of Christianity, we think that as long as I was born in Texas, or as long as I was born into a Christian home, or as long as I was born in this specific kind of thing, then I'm a Christian. That's not a biblical version of Christianity. It's not even the historical version of Christianity. It's not the orthodox right version of Christianity. See, Christianity, once again, is a relationship. And if you know Jesus Christ, everything is going to change. And if things haven't changed, you need to evaluate where you're at. You need to evaluate where you're at. And with Christ at center, everything changes. And part of that everything 
is our relationships. Our relationships will change. We talked about how last week Paul pointed at the husbands and he said, guys, sacrificially love your wives. And as you sacrificially loved your wives, you pointed to the wives and said, wives, submit to the headship of the man in the relationship. Submit to that. And both of those things are big struggles for any of us because we rebel against the plan that God has for us. But when we see this order and these rules play themselves out, it actually leads to this next verse that we're going to see. And it says in chapter 3, verse 20, the word children. And I want to point out that word children for this reason right here. I didn't mention it last week. But when it says wives, who is he talking to? Wives. When it says husbands, who is he talking to? Husbands. When he says children, who is he talking to? Children. You know what we have a tendency to do? Wives have a tendency to say, look what it says to you. Husbands have a tendency to say, oh, look what it says to you. And parents have a tendency to say, children, look what it says to you. He's not talking to you to give you ammo. He's telling you what you have to do first. So he says, children, obey your parents in everything. Everything. One more time. That's right. It's okay to say it this time. For this pleases the Lord. Fathers or parents do not exasperate. And the word exasperate means irritate intensely. Do not exasperate your children so they won't become discouraged. Slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only when being watched as people pleasers, but work wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, which means everything, do it from the heart. As something done for the Lord, not for people, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord, you serve the Lord Christ. For, what, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever is wrong he has done, and there is no favoritism. Chapter 4 starts off saying, Masters, deal with your slaves justly and fairly, since you know that you too have a master in heaven. Devote yourselves to prayer. Stay alert in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door to us for that word, to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains, so that I may make it known as I should. Act wisely towards outsiders, making the most of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer each person. I'm going to stop right there because the rest of it is a bunch of names. And we're going to look at those names as we scan over it. And we're going to kind of break it down there at the end. But here's what I want you guys to see. Is once again, it all comes together with Christ at center. Why should we do any of this stuff? Why should husbands sacrificially love their wives? Why should wives submit to their husbands? Why should children obey everything? Why should slaves obey everything? Why should masters treat their slaves fairly? Why? Why should we bother with any of this? It is so countercultural to all the things that go on in this world. All those things that he lists out there are completely different than what anything else the world is saying. Why should we do it? You know why we should do it? Because it is countercultural. Because it is something that Christ has called us to do to be different. See, the deal is, is that if you are devoted to Christ, you should look different than if you're devoted to yourself. And when we're living in the ways of the world, it's devoted to self. It's all about me. And then if you're living in the way of Christ, it's all about him. So it changes things. See, God's plans are bigger than my plans. God's plans are better than my plans. God's plans are perfect. My plans are only in the way. Yet I continue to live in this way thinking that somehow I know better 
than God, even in relationships. He says, no, this is the way it's supposed to work. This is the way it creates order. This is the way that I made it. That's why in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, it says, you know, to trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding because our own understanding, it only gets in the way. And Jeremiah 29, 11 says, his plans are better than my plans. And he's got great plans for me. Stop getting in the way. Why do we do it? Why do we live counterculturally? Well, it's not because of me. It's not to say, look what kind of rebel I am against culture. It's to say, look how great God is that I'm living for him, that he's done these things, and my response is to live for him and not for myself. It's about his glory. It's about all of that with Christ at center. So here's a question for you. What's the purpose of your life? Why is it that you do what you do? Why is it that you you say what you say? Why is it that you live the way you live? Why is it? Because I really believe that if Christ isn't at center, this is a question that is just aimless. This week, maybe you saw it, two prominent people in the celebrity world committed suicide by hanging themselves. One, Kate Spade, who I didn't know who that was until I looked her up, and Chris was like, oh, did you hear her? I'm like, I don't know who that is. So not exactly a fashion designer kind of guy, don't care any purses or clutches, but apparently that's where it's at. She, uh, she took her own life this week. And then, just a few days later, a guy by the name of Anthony Bourdain, which I'm into food, so I know him. He's on the Food Network. He took his own life as well. And you look at that and you say, wait a second. Uh, what is going on here? And, of course, the world's going to ask that question why. And if you listen to talk radio at all, all of a sudden, all the talk radio starts going towards mental illness. And all these things that are going on, well, it's got to be mental illness. And, and here's the thing. I'm not lessening mental illness at all, but we are fully aware of mental illness more now than ever. So how is it that 30% higher suicide rates among the population are going on right now when we know so much about mental illness? What is it? Well, a guy by the name of Matt Walsh, who uh, is a, uh, a blogger, and you know sometimes I agree with him, sometimes I don't. He wrote this, and I thought, man, this is perfect as he says what he says. He says, it's not a problem with mental illness. He says, I think it's a problem that's emptiness. There is an emptiness at the core of our culture, and from it, the root of suicide epidemic, it grows. We have fled from God, fled from meaning, fled from purpose, and embraced a soft kind of nihilism, which is a rejection of all morals and a rejection of all religion. A nihilism that will not even call itself nihilism. It uses other words and slogans like, you only live once. It says things like, live your truth. Or maybe you've heard this before, you be you. But here's the problem. People are told that there's only one life, one reality, and it has no meaning aside from what you assign to it. But what happens when you no longer see meaning? What happens? When you've been told the whole time, our culture says, if you do not see it, then there is no meaning there. And if there's no meaning there, why bother living? That is our culture and what our culture is pushing out there. What is it that we understand when Christ is at center? There is an eternal meaning to that. And that's why it is so important for us to live with Christ at center. See, sometimes we say, well, money is what I'm chasing after. Do you realize that Kate Spade's net worth was $150 million? Anthony Bourdain's was $16 million. Kind of chump change compared to hers, but still, I wouldn't mind having a net worth of $16 million. Say, well, money obviously isn't it. What about world travel and experiencing new things? That was Anthony Bourdain's job. 
He traveled the world and experienced new food and got paid to do it. Yet, it wasn't enough. What about family? Well, Kate Spade left behind a husband and a 13-year-old daughter. Anthony Bourdain left behind a daughter and, and two ex-wives. So is it family that we should be living for? What should be at the center? What should be our pursuit? What should be the purpose of our lives? See, with the rejection and rebellion of morals and religion, that word nihilism becomes rebellion against God's plan. And God's plan, it's found through Jesus Christ, and it built on that plan of Jesus Christ is the home, the Christian home. And when Satan can disrupt that plan and say, we're going to rebel against Jesus, we're going to rebel against this plan that God has for us, and crumble the home. Do you realize, I mentioned it last week, but do you realize the home is the foundational institution for society? That what goes on the home shows up in the school place. If you're a teacher, you know that. And it goes from the school place into the workplace, as we see with this idea of slaves obey your masters. It begins to crumble if it's not there. But here's the thing. The Christian home, it's an endangered species. It's an endangered species. If we have a dad who is sacrificially loving and a wife who is in, in the process of submitting and coming alongside of him in his leadership and going in that direction, guess what's going to happen? We're going to set the foundation for kids to desire to obey. See, but when you take away dad and he's just being a putz, and you take away mom who's trying to take over, the kids are not going to be a part of it because the chaos has already started. So when you have that mentality, you see it. And that's why Paul says, if husbands and wives are living covenantially, not by emotions, not by feelings, but in a covenant between themselves and between them and God, things are going to change. And that is going to flow down to this idea of children, obey your parents in everything. Everything. I get a little spattered here. It's okay to say it. It's all right. It's good. In everything, for this pleases the Lord. Can I ask a child for just a second here? What does the word everything mean? Bob, I'll consider you a child today. It's all good. Yeah, it does. It means everything. Does it mean that I get to pick and I get to choose what I want and how I want to do it and what I want to obey and what I don't want to? Or does it mean everything? It means everything. Obey your parents in everything. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. There we go. I knew you guys were still with me. You're drawing caterpillars like Jerome. Here's the thing. As we look at that everything, he is talking to kids. But what kids is he talking about? Because every person in here is a child of somebody. So what kids is he talking about? How far does this go? And he kind of looks at this. He's got kids sitting in the service, by the way. His letter is being written to a church, being read in the process of a service. He's gearing it towards children, so children are in the service. Those children, the ones that he's talking to, are the ones who still live at home. They're ones that still live at home, and they're under the support of mom and dad. Now you say, well, what age does that mean? And of course, we don't fully know that because here's the deal. <laughs> Not every kid gets out at 18. As a matter of fact, I'm not sure if you just saw in the news, what, two, three weeks ago, the parents that had to take their 30-year-old son to court to get him out of the house. If you didn't see it, you should read about it. I'd be totally embarrassed to be that guy. They tried to give him money to get out, and he refused. So they had to take him to court to have the judge get him out of their house. 
So my guess is he falls under the obedience thing. He should have just obeyed his parents, took the money, and got out. But here's the reality. Who is he talking to? And when does it stop? Well, the obedience part stops, I believe, when you're out on your own. You have your own family. You're doing your own thing. And at the same time, the thing that doesn't stop is the idea of honor and respect. Because it never stops with that. We still honor and respect our parents in that. So we see these children being told, your parents have Christ at center. They're living the way I described already. And that covenantal loving relationship. They have your parents at center, and they're li- or they have Christ at center of their lives, and as they're living that way, you need to obey them as they raise you up in the Lord. See, that is the reason why they're raised up in the Lord, is because the church, even though it's great to bring them here, the church's job is not to teach the children to be in Christ. It is the parent's job, and the best way for a parent's job to do it is live by example, not just by words. Because as we will see in the next verse, hypocrisy is one of the big things that actually tears kids away and creates that disobedience. Because these parents, the parents that he's writing to, he says, as you see the meaning and as you see the purpose of your life revolving around Christ, your duty is to point your children that way. Your duty is to take them that, to raise your kids to know Jesus and to follow him. And here's the thing we need to understand. If mom and dad aren't doing their duty, that word everything has exceptions. Yeah. Got it in there. But that word everything has exceptions. If mom and dad aren't doing their duty, you're like, wait a second. How can everything have exceptions? Everything should be supposed to be everything. And it is supposed to be everything if mom and dad are doing what they're supposed to be doing. But if mom and dad aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing and they're asking you to do things that are against what God has commanded, against God's instructions, against Jesus' life and example, then by all means, it's okay to disobey. And you went, wait a second, did Matt just tell me it's okay to disobey? I did. Because if there's somebody trying to hurt you, if there's somebody trying to harm you, if there's somebody trying to go against what God has called you to do and told you this is the way we live and mom and dad are doing something wrong or aunt and uncle are doing something wrong, tell somebody. Tell me, tell Christy, tell one of the teachers here, tell an adult and say something is wrong because that is not okay. And it's not your fault, by the way. Parents are supposed to guide. Parents are supposed to direct closer to Jesus. And that is what we obey them in, in obeying everything. And as we see that play itself out, Paul's not only talking to the kids, but he talks to the the parents about the responsibility of raising those kids. What is the responsibility? It's like last week. If the husband is sacrificially loving, the wife will make it easier for her to submit. If the parents are doing their duty, it will make the child's ability to obey easier. Now, it's not going to make it perfect because we're all sinners. We all still fall short. But it says this. If the parents are not exasperating, if the parents aren't irritating their children intensely, You can ask my kids, there's days that I irritate them intensely, okay? I fall short in this. I want to lay that out right now in case you're wondering. I told you guys last week, as Christy said, hey, how you doing in this? My answer was, I'm a work in progress. Guess what? This verse, still a work in progress. Do not irritate intensely your children so they don't become discouraged. And I think it'll be a whole lot easier if they're not getting discouraged by parents doing those kind of things for them to obey with pleasure, As children, and I don't mean give every child what they want when they want it. That's not what I mean by don't exasperate them. See, we see a whole generation that's living that way right now. Obviously, it's not working well. 
the sense of entitlement, the sense of things that are out there. I really laughed. I found this quote from the Duke of Windsor back in 1957. It said this, The thing that impresses me most about America is the way that parents obey their children. I was like, that is perfect, and that was written 60-plus years ago. When you look at that, you say, that, that, that's the reality. Go to the grocery store. How often do you see parents obeying their children? And we see that play itself out in the home. As it plays itself out in the home, we get to see it in the school place. When we see it in the school place, guess what? It transfers as they become older to the workplace. And we're going to see that flow in what Paul's writing here. It starts off with husbands and wives, goes to the children. Those children are going to grow up, and they're going to become slaves in the workplace. And they'll also become masters or employers in that workplace. It begins to continue and continue and continue. But you say, it says, don't discourage them. It says, don't give them everything they want, but also don't discourage them. Don't, don't have this crushing a child mentally or emotionally or even physically try and make it work that way because it doesn't work either. We can't discourage them. Well, what does that look like? I wrote down some words. One, unpredictability. How many times, maybe as you, and you can see this maybe in your own parents as you grew up, or kids, if you're in here, unpredictability basically means this. It means, what's mom and dad going to react to this time? Is it going to be big because I did something small, or is it going to be small because I did something big? How do I know? I don't have any idea what the rules look like. Unreasonableness, throwing down judgment. I'm bad at this, by the way. Throwing down judgment before you actually know the facts. Unfairness, a parent gives a harsher punishment for a minor matter. Or favoritism, one child gets away with murder while the other one gets pounded immediately. How about this? Selfishness. A parent uses the child to meet their own needs. Extremes of over and under discipline. Criticism without praise. Insensitivity. A parent minimizes what the child thinks is important to them. And I probably shouldn't use the word thinks because that kind of puts you where I'm at in my head. Because sometimes you're like, come on. Why are you crying? Suck it up. You know, that kind of mentality we have in there. Insensitivity. Unavailability. These stinking phones. Don't they get in the way of being available way too often? Unavailability. Breaking promises, which teaches a child not to trust what his parents say, so why should I bother obeying? Hypocrisy. A child sees a parent putting on a front of righteousness before others, yet lives a different way in the house. Doesn't live with Christ at center except at church on Sunday morning. Legalism. Rules over a relationship. And you're like, man, that's a long list. It'll be online. You can write it down after that. Here's the thing. What do you do as a parent? What should I do as a parent? What book should I look at as a parent to figure out how to best love my kids? And there are so many books on parenting out there, but there's only one that really matters. You see, the Bible is all about a loving father loving his children and taking care of his children. We can learn an example from looking at who God is and what God has done for us. See, God is a responsible parent. He motivates us. He connects us. He's not passive. He's active. See, God, he emphasizes grace and he emphasizes love. He doesn't discount discipline, but he emphasizes grace and love. They're the primary things. So as a parent, we can do the same. And also, we can like our kids, not just love them. You're like, wait a second, what does that mean? Well, I think you know exactly what it means. Because sometimes you're like, I love you, but I really don't like you. There's some kids you like better than others. You have to be careful in that. God, even though we fall, even though we stumble, even though we rebel, 
still likes us and still loves us. And all that home stuff, like I already said, it ties into the workplace. Look what it says here in verse 22. Slaves, obey your human masters in, what's that word? Everything. Don't work only when being watched as people pleasers, but work wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people. Who do you work for? Everything. That's Yeah, sometimes we do work for everything. Knowing that you will receive a reward and inheritance from the Lord, you serve the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who we work for. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for what is wrong and he has done, and there is no favoritism. Masters, deal with your slaves justly and fairly, since you know that you have to have a master in heaven. You might look at that first verse and go, okay, it says slaves. Why didn't Paul crush the idea of slavery? I mean, we look at slavery as wrong. We see it as wrong. Why in the Bible does it encourage slaves to obey their masters and not to run away? Well, we could get into that and get into a whole bunch of that, but here's the thing we need to understand. Slavery, there actually there's two points we need to understand. Slavery was different in Roman times. <clears throat> Half of the Roman population were slaves. Half. 60 million people were in slavery. But the thing is, it's not the slavery of forced labor. It is, I'm paying back a debt. We kind of call that the workplace nowadays. We earn money to pay back debt. And that's exactly what was taking place here. See, slaves then were doctors. Slaves then were nurses. Slaves then were, were in all different positions, not just those out there in the field picking cotton or anything like that, like we would assume in our mindset when we hear the word slave. Now, the other thing is, is that Paul's goal was life change to create culture change. He wasn't into the political rebellion to create culture change. Now, as he changed people's lives, those people got involved in politics, and politics began to change that as well. But he started off with evangelism and discipleship to change people's lives to see that happen. So, here's a question. As we see the home in proper order, it should naturally carry over into the workplace in natural order. Why doesn't it? Why do we see such problems with obedience and submission to authority in the workplace? Why do we struggle with that so much? Well, because we're human beings and we want our own plan. We forget that God had this plan that he worked out that he had all together. Imagine if employees did what Paul says here. Imagine if employers did what Paul says here. How much different of a world would we have? And you think to yourself, you see there in the very first verse, it says, hey, do it in everything. Kids, again, what is everything? It's everything. So as an employer, it says for me to, to obey, uh, or I'm sorry, as an employee, it says for me to obey everything? Wait a second. That can't be right. But Romans chapter 13, verse 1, Paul's also writing, says, let everyone submit to the governing authority since there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are instituted by God. Your employer has been instituted by God. When we disobey or we dishonor our employers, guess what? The next verse of Romans chapter 13, verse 2, says that you are rebelling against God. That's what we're doing. If we are not in line with what he says, and guess what happens when we rebel against God? We give him a name to say, hey, I'm a Christian, and I have this whole idea of submitting to Christ and following him, but guess what? I'm not going to do that for you. What's that say to your employer? 
What are we teaching him? Where are we taking him? And you go, well, wait a second. What if my, my employer is just a big, dumb jerk? And he's mean, and he doesn't know Jesus, and he doesn't want to know Jesus, and he's just being mean to me in that area. How should Christians respond to them? How did David respond to King Saul? When King Saul was trying to kill him, that's a bad thing for an employer to do to an employee. He had every opportunity to get back. He had every opportunity. He said, I will not raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. What about when the Pharisees were telling all these people to do all this stuff? How did Jesus respond to them? Well, Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 through 3 says, Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, all the people that are following. The scribes and the Pharisees are seated in the chair of Moses. Therefore, do whatever they tell you. And observe it. But don't do what they do because they don't practice what they teach. The teachings were there. Do what you're told even though they're going against it. And this is the same people who killed Jesus. And the reason why we do it is because when Christ is at center, it's all about him. It's not about me. And the thing is, is that changes the employer as well. As it looks the same as it did with the husbands and the wives and the children with their parents, if the person in charge is living the way that God would have them live, it's going to change the reaction of the people that are under him. And we see that in the same thing. In that role of leadership, we need to represent. We need to model Christ. We need to be fair. We need to encourage. We need to sacrifice. We need to love as we would love ourselves. And that's a huge step to look at. And we see that all of this leads to the conclusion of chapter 4. And all of it leads to the conclusion of chapter 4, and it wraps up with a handful of things. And the first thing it says is devote yourself to prayer. Devote yourself to prayer. How in the world are we going to be able to do this without being connected to Christ through a relationship? How can we live the way that he's called us to live in these last two chapters, really all of chapter 3 here? How are we going to be able to do it? How is it going to affect everything we do, everything we think? Devote yourself to prayer. When it says devote yourself, it means be persistent in it. Don't just say, I'm going to be devoted on Sunday morning to pray for 15 minutes before service and pray that God speaks to me. It's, it's a devotion so much so it says, stay alert, which means be passionate about it. I'm not sure about you, but there's days that I get into this weird little funk where I want to get a new car. Actually, I want to get a new truck more than a new car. So I, I want to get into that, and what I start doing, I start scanning Craigslist. And as I scan Craigslist, I know exactly what I want. I want the specific model, I want the specific color, I want all this, and I am passionately searching for it on a consistent basis, because it's always on my mind. I'll see one drive by, I'm like, ooh, I wonder if that one's for sale. Ooh, you know, that's the mentality that we have as we move through it all. That's staying alert, that's being passionate about it. What if we prayed like that? What if we had that kind of gumption behind what we wanted to do? And then it says, not only stay alert in it, but also be thankful. See, our mindset changes, and it shows dependence and humility, and it shows a relationship if we are thankful to the one who gave it to. And then it says, at some time, or I'm sorry, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door for us to the word, to speak the mystery of Christ for which I have been changed so that I may make it known as I should. So he's saying, not just pray and devote yourself to prayer, but have a specific target. Pray that we, as ministers, live out the gospel. Pray that we, Paul, lives out the gospel. Pray that I live out the gospel. Pray that the people that are around you that have been called to live out the gospel live out the gospel. And then guess what it says next? Verse 5, act wisely towards outsiders, making the most 
of the time. Making the most of the time. I, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture is Ephesians 5, chapter, 15, uh, sorry, chapter 5, verses 15 and 16. It says, therefore, be careful how you live, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So he doesn't just tell us in Colossians to make the most of our time. He also tells us in Ephesians, make the most of your time. Let me ask you this. God has a plan. If we are following that plan, my guess is, is that's a better way to make use of your time than fighting against his plan, which we know isn't going to win. But yet we do it anyway. Make the most of your time. Pray for me as I live out the gospel. And then don't forget that it's not just my job to live out the gospel. It's also your job. Pray for yourself to live out the gospel. When you wake up in the morning, say, God, give me the opportunity to share the words that I'm supposed to share, because that's what he says there. And then he says, oh, by the way, those words that come out, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer each person. Why? Because every non-believer is, is looking for a reason to stay a non-believer. They're looking for a reason to stay a non-believer. We are naturally rebellious. I don't want to submit. I don't want to sacrificially love. I don't want to be an employee that's okay with being an employee. I don't want to be an employer that's okay with not wielding my power. Why? Why would I want to do that? song I grew up with, I listened to DC Talk when I was in high school and college, and maybe some of you know how, have any idea what I'm talking about with that, but there's a song called, What If I Stumble? In the beginning of it, it had a quote from Brendan Manning, and Brendan Manning, it said this, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, then walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Every interaction we have, as a matter of fact, another Brendan Manning quote says this, in every encounter, we either give life or we drain it. There is no neutral exchange. When we are living with Christ at the center, it's going to affect everybody else. It's going to affect us in everything, but it will affect everybody else. In the home, we live out the gospel. Fill our roles. In the workplace, we live out the gospel. We fill our roles. In the church, we pray for those who live out the gospel and pray for them to fill their roles. And then guess what? We do it too. This is how it all ties together. And he begins to say, here's the roles. And at the end, he says, here's the people who helped me in my role, and they had their role in it all as well. This last bit of the chapter is like the end credits of a movie. Yeah, sure, when you watch the movie, they have the stars listed first by name and, and their, their character. But at the end, there's a thousand names, thousands of names. Say, this is the person that did this job, and this is the person that did this job, and this is the person that did this job to make this movie happen. Well, guess what? Paul says, I'm not doing this alone. All these people, and you can look through and you can see them all, and the great thing is all of them say they are fellow bondservants of Christ, which means they are slaves to Jesus. They are coming alongside of him, and each of them have their own roles, and their roles are accountability, and their roles are encouragement, and their roles are support, and they're working together, and they're a team. He says, be a part of the team. I'm not sure if you're into basketball at all, or hockey at all, or baseball, or football. But here's the thing that I realize, that those are team sports, that everybody has a role. Some are more glorious and some are not. I don't watch basketball all that often except for time at the finals because there's something about elimination that just kind of gets you a little bit excited. So I watched the finals this, this, uh, this last um, week, and Golden State swept Cleveland. And the reason why Golden State swept Cleveland is simply this. Golden State played as a team. 
and had guys who filled their roles, Cleveland had LeBron James. And LeBron James, amazing basketball player, but it's not one on five. And even to the point that he carried them, and you can listen to any sports radio, and they're like, the only reason why they even made it to the finals is because of LeBron James. And now he's talking about going someplace else again and bouncing around and finding someplace where he could actually win and be on a team. The thing is, it's not about one guy. One guy might be able to do a lot of work, just like Paul did here, but it's about the team who came alongside, who brought the message. And guess what? Sometimes even that team, it struggles. Because the last guy mentioned in this passage in Colossians chapter 4 is a guy by the name of Demas. And you may not hear a whole, whole lot about Demas, but if you go over to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, it tells you about Demas, how he forsook Paul. He abandoned Paul for the love of the world. And we can get into that, and we can get into what that looks like and what that means in spirituality. We can get into what it means for salvation and all that kind of stuff another time. But here's the thing that we understand, that even on that team, people are going to abandon you. One of the hardest things in ministry for me is when somebody bails. Somebody you've invested your time into, somebody you invested your energy into, sometimes you've invested your money into, and they go off the deep end and go the wrong way. It tears you up inside. It's the hardest thing I'd say about ministry. But yeah, it doesn't mean you stop ministering. It doesn't mean we, we stop doing what we're called to do because God has a plan, and we have to follow his plan. That is, have Christ at center, live out our lives as such, fill our roles, do our duty, share the gospel, live the gospel. And that's what Colossians is all about. I hope over the last nine weeks you've been challenged with that. That in your prayer time, in your worship time, in your relationships, in your lives, in general, that you have Christ at center and it changes everything. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for who you are and thank you for what you do. And thank you for being willing and patient and gracious and merciful. Because, God, without it, we'd be up a creek. We'd be a mess. We'd be rebellious and living in a society of chaos. Even though chaos abounds around us, God, we have peace in your Son, Jesus Christ, because he is radically changing us. As we listen to his words, as we meditate on him, as we apply his teaching and his example, it's changing us. And it's changing us radically to the place where, where the world doesn't understand what is going on. We know that your son will change our hearts. We know he's going to change our minds. We know he's going to change our thoughts. We know he's going to change our perspectives. We know he's going to change our actions and our reactions. And even as we see today, God, he's going to change our relationships. God, we just ask that you help us live with Jesus at center because we can't do it on our own. Bring people around us that are going to encourage us and support us and hold us accountable. Bring people into our lives that are going to help push us farther that we can also, in turn, help push farther, closer to you. Because that is what this church is about. It's not about getting together and just singing songs and getting to feel good and eat cookies and M&Ms. But God, it is about moving people closer to you. God, we pray that happens in our lives, in our daily lives, in our families. As they, our co-workers see us, as our families see us, as our church friends see us, they can say, there's something different there. Help us to be a part of the team. Help us to understand our role. Help us to fill that role. We pray it all in your name. Amen. Guys, I'm grateful for the opportunity to be able to do what I get to do. And the reason why I get to do what I get to do is because you do what you do. You serve. You come alongside. You encourage. You support. I'm thankful for that. 
let's never forget that we are a team. As a church, we each have our own roles, and in that role, as it works together, it's a beautiful thing called the body of Christ. And there's different parts of that body that do different things, but they all have the same goal in mind, and that is to live for the head that is Christ. If you're not living for the head as Christ, I want to talk to you. I want to pray with you. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, if you've never experienced having him at the center, let's do that today. Let's talk about that before you go.